coming up here because it's just so, it, they, I love that little intro music. It's all light and fun and happy. And then boom, we smack you back into the Sermon on the Mount. And we're into some super intense scripture this morning. And some scripture, right, you just jump in. It's really easy to get what's going on. Like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The end. That's all I need to know about that. And then other scripture, like our little Sermon on the Mount, just needs a little more time and a little more energy from us to understand the richness of what's happening and why it matters to us. And to do this, we need to look again and again at the context. So we're, we're halfway through this, this sermon series. We've, got, we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to revisit the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And when I say context, what I mean is that we look at the different aspects of a passage to help us understand what it means. We look at the different parts to help us understand the whole. And everything's better understood in context. And if we don't do this, the Sermon on the Mount is a great example of what can happen because it's very, very easy for the Sermon on the Mount, apart from its context, to seem like this list of do's and don'ts, right? Do this, don't do this. Or reminders of how we don't measure up. Or this kind of antiquated speech from Jesus that really doesn't have any relevance for us in our modern context, in our modern times. So before we go into our specific passages today, there are a few different contexts we'll look at to help us understand what Jesus is saying to us in this section. First, we talk about the historical context. So every single word of scripture, we know this, right, was written to a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific purpose. Spoiler alert, it's not us. Like it was not written to us. That doesn't mean scripture can't speak to anybody at any time. It does. That's one of the beauties of scripture. But it does mean we need to consider the historical context as we seek to understand what's happening because the original audience has really different circumstances than we do. They have really different values. They have very different lives. And as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, we want to consider how the original listeners would have heard it. What connections would they have been making? What would have been coming up for them that's not as obvious for us because we're coming from a completely different historical context? Secondly, we want to consider the literal context. What's actually happening in this passage? What's going on? Then underneath, there's the metaphorical context, the story underneath the literal story being told. Now, metaphor is a huge, huge part of Jewish teaching and storytelling. It's why we see Jesus so often speaking in these parables. There's tons of metaphor in scripture, which honestly is kind of confusing for us coming from a postmodern Western context where we're taught that what's literal is what's true. And everything else is kind of like also there. But the literal for our interpretation, literal is at the top and everything else comes after that which is not at all how the Hebrew scriptures were originally written or intended to be understood. My professors in seminary would say the literal interpretation of a passage is often the most basic interpretation. That doesn't mean it's bad or it's not important. It just means there's a lot more going on that we'll miss if we're only looking at what literally is being said and why. In the Hebrew scriptures, the hierarchy's flipped. Literal is not at the top because there's so much more going on metaphorically. And what metaphor does is it tells us these really important truths in different ways, in ways we might not have been able to hear literally. 
Finally, there's the overall narrative context. What is this passage telling us about the big picture story of God? Scholars will call this the grand narrative. The overarching story that starts with God's creation of everything and culminates with what we see at the end of Revelation, where God restores everything and comes down to live in this beautiful communion that we were all intended for at the beginning. The grand narrative weaves together every single part of scripture into this big, big story. And it tells us the truth about God, it tells us the truth about ourselves, and it tells us the truth about each other and the world. So let's look at the context for the Sermon on the Mount. Scholars call the Sermon on the Mount the inaugural address of King Jesus. We find the most complete account of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were here when Rabbi Noah preached on Labor Day, he gave a fantastic introduction to the historical context of Matthew's Gospel. I'm not even going to attempt to try and summarize that for us because it's so good. Just go listen to it. Um, but I will tell you a few things that are helpful that are important for understanding what we're talking about. So Matthew is a Jewish disciple of Jesus writing to show a Jewish audience how Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And the Sermon on the Mount is key in helping convince them of this because, as Rabbi Noah told us, Matthew intentionally communicates the Sermon on the Mount with these very deliberate echoes to Moses giving the law at Mount Sinai. And Matthew does this for two reasons. One, he wants to emphasize the continuity of this with the Hebrew history. And two, he wants to show the God-given authority of Jesus. Remember, Jesus comes in a way that the Jews are not expecting. So a lot of Matthew's gospel is saying, hey, this crazy guy over here, he actually is the guy that we thought we were waiting for. It just looks really different. So the Sermon on the Mount is really important for Matthew to show this. Secondly, in the Judeo-Roman culture of the time, when a king came on the throne, he'd get the people together and give this address to explain what life was going to look like now that he was in charge. That's exactly what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. So as we put this into historical and literal context, we begin to see the original audience would have immediately understood this overall narrative context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is that we have the Messiah King telling us about what life is like in the kingdom of God. And this makes sense because the main message of Jesus throughout all of the Gospels is that the kingdom of heaven is here, right? The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining what life in the kingdom is like because of who the king is. The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us what life in the kingdom is like because of who the king is. Now, if you're following along with us in Sky Jathani's book, What If Jesus Was Serious, that we're reading throughout this sermon series, he reminds us very early on that the kingdom of heaven is not this mystical place that we go to when we die. Which is honestly very confusing if you're like me and you were taught that earth is down here and heaven's up here. And when you die, Jesus, or an angel, or whoever's on call up there, comes down and grabs your soul and takes you to heaven, which is in this galaxy far, far away from here. Like, there's a huge distance between these two things. And for most of us, that's the practical theology we have when we talk about heaven, or the kingdom, or earth. 
But Jesus doesn't come and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand as soon as you die. He's here saying the kingdom of heaven is already breaking into our sinful world. It's already at hand because we're invited to begin experiencing life with God in this kingdom now. That's why he's giving us the Sermon on the Mount, to tell us what this life in the kingdom of God is like because we're invited to start living into that now. And there's a tension here because, just be, because we won't experience the fullness of that yet, right? Theologians call this the already but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So we're invited to begin experiencing life in the kingdom now. And we won't live into the fullness of that until God returns. It's both and. And the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll look at today explains what it looks like to live into the kingdom of God now within the tension of this already but not yet time that we find ourselves in. So grab your Bibles and open with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 16 where Jesus explains, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is contrasting the abundance of God's kingdom with the scarcity of the world. Jesus is telling us that in God's kingdom, there's not only enough, there's more than enough. It's extravagant, like we sang about. This abundance is the opposite of scarcity, which is finite, limited, not enough. In the kingdom of God, you'll be taken care of. He's telling us that your needs will be satisfied. You will delight in the richest affair, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is good, good news. And we see God's abundance from the very beginning of the grand narrative, right? When God creates everything in the beginning of Genesis, what do we see? It's very good. Everything's in balance. Everything's enough. Everything is satisfied. And Jesus is contrasting this abundance of God with the scarcity of the world in his instructions on how to fast, in his warnings about not storing up treasures here on earth, the futility of that, recognizing the light and the darkness in ourselves. And all of those lead up to one of the most famous verses in all of scripture. Verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Earlier translations of this would have had money translated as mammon, which in the Middle Ages became its own, it got like its own TV show, it was like its own demon, mammon. But early on, mammon was like this pursuit of more, this insatiable lust for more. And so let's put this into historical context. If we're the original audience hearing this, two things would have immediately come to our mind when we hear Jesus say, you cannot serve two masters. First, we would have thought about Moses and the Ten Commandments. We talked about this a little earlier, about the setting, the content of the Sermon on the Mount, evoking Moses, giving the law. But now this is a direct connection to the Ten Commandments because who remembers what the first commandment is? Anybody? It's a pop quiz. You shall have no other gods before me. In saying you can't serve two masters, what is Jesus doing here? He's making this direct connection to the, the commandments, to the first commandment. He's intentionally echoing this. They would have immediately understood that. Secondly, this language of serving a master would have brought to mind when God's people were forced to serve another master, when they were slaves in Egypt. This is a great example of how we see the literal context and the metaphorical context come together to tell us about the grand narrative. Because literally, we know there's a time where the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. There's ample historical evidence of this, and there's a lot of literal evidence of this in, in the book of Exodus and on in the Old Testament. What Jesus is doing here, though, is showing that the story underneath this literal story of their Egyptian slavery and what it means within the, the place that it has in the grand narrative. So during the Israelite slavery in Egypt, what happens is the people forget the abundance of God. They're not able to practice Sabbath. They're not able to practice their rituals. They're working 24-7. They have zero agency over themselves and their bodies and their community. They're enslaved. 
And what happens is they forget who they are. They forget who God is. They forget the abundance of God, and they begin to become not just literal slaves to Pharaoh, but metaphorical slaves to this idea of scarcity. This is where we see scarcity start to really take root in the people of God. They start serving another master. And when God takes them out of Egypt, when God frees them from this literal slavery, God brings them into the wilderness to start to liberate them from this metaphorical slavery. Often we're taught that when God takes them out of Egypt and brings them to the wilderness, it's like some time of punishment. Like they're going into a timeout. And God's like, think about what you did before I take you into the promised land. But really it's like this time of detox. It's like this time of rehab. It's this... It's this time where it's not enough for God to get them out of Egypt. They needed God to get Egypt out of them. They need to relearn who God is. They need to relearn who they are. And they need to relearn what it looks like to live as the people of God. So Jesus comments in this section about the futility of trying to store up treasures on earth. Our direct connection to this time in the wilderness when God gives the Israelites manna. You remember this? The Israelites are out in the wilderness complaining to God, asking God why God freed them from this horrible slavery only to watch them die of starvation in the wilderness. And every morning what God does is he gives them manna and that's their food for the day. It's like some weird cracker hybrid thing, manna. <laughs> so it's not great, but it's, it's what they're going to eat for that day. The catch was, there's just enough for that day. And if you tried to store it up, if you tried to hoard it, it got all bad and stinky, and everybody knew that you were trying to hoard it. So manna's literally how God feeds the people. And metaphorically, manna is God's way of starting to teach them, to reteach them God's abundance. I will provide for you. Every single day, I'll provide for you. You don't have to worry about your food. You don't have to worry about tomorrow because guess who's going to be there tomorrow? Me. And guess what I'll do for you tomorrow? Provide what you need. Sounds very similar to what we were talking about in the end of Matthew 6, right? Verses 26 through 34. It's, Jesus sums it up in verses 31 through 34. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount explains what life in the kingdom of God is like because of who God is. Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of heaven is abundant because God is a kind, safe parent who's going to provide for our needs. God takes good care of God's children. We don't have to earn God's favor through these elaborate religious acts. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, don't make this big show out of fasting. 
You don't have to earn this. We don't have to hoard up money and stuff to give ourselves a sense of security or the sense of power or the sense of agency. It's what Jesus is talking about when he says that's the futility of trying to store up things here on earth. We don't have to constantly be producing and earning to have worth in God's kingdom. That's what he's talking about with the light and the darkness in ourselves. And we don't have to worry about whether we'll be okay, whether there will be enough, whether God will take care of us. That's what he means by don't worry. Not serving two masters and seeking first God's kingdom requires that we trust God's abundance. The message paraphrases part of this passage as Jesus saying, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way God works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how God works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. It's so captivating, right? It's so beautiful to read that and hear that. Who here doesn't want to live in that abundance? Who doesn't want to give up worrying about missing out? But I think if we're honest in this already but not yet tension that we find ourselves in, we live in a culture of scarcity. And that often feels way more real than the truth of God's abundance. A great example of how a culture of scarcity shapes us as humans is the prevalence of anxiety. You might have read that for the first time ever, a few weeks ago, a U.S. preventative services task force recommended that every single person under the age of 65, every single adult under the age of 65, should be screened for anxiety. We live in a culture of scarcity. Were these beings created to live in God's kingdom of abundance where everything's enough and we find ourselves in the culture of scarcity and it makes us anxious? We're like the Israelites in Egypt. Egypt, it's hard to trust God's abundance when we live in what feels like a world of scarcity. And so like the Israelites, what we need is for God to get the Egypt out of us, to reteach us the truth that God's a safe parent who will take care of our needs. We can trust God to provide, even if that looks different than how I would choose to provide for me if I were God. We need God to reteach us the truth that the kingdom of heaven is here and it's characterized by abundance. You don't have to go out and get yours. You don't have anything to lose. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have to worry or push or earn or hoard. There's always enough. And the process by which God gets Egypt out of us, this kind of relearning, this reorienting, isn't top down. We don't just hear a sermon on this and then just tell ourselves this over and over and over and then expect actual transformation in our hearts, in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls. No. 
That's why Jesus brings up the manna in the wilderness here, right? Like it's a physical moment by moment relearning the truth of who God is in our everyday lives. And one place, something you can start right now in terms of this reorienting is to incorporate two questions into your conversation with God. I like to do this every night, but really you can do it anytime throughout the day. Ask God to show you, God, where am I being drawn in by your abundance? Where am I experiencing your provision? Where am I sensing in my actual life that you're a good parent who will take care of me? Where am I learning to trust you more? And then where am I being driven by scarcity? Where am I feeling like I'm not enough? The other day we were driving and my five-year-old goes, Mommy, why do we always hit so many red lights? And I was thinking, this kid is five and he's already got the scarcity coming into his bones, right? Like, just I got to get there. There's so many red lights. Guess where he's hearing that? This girl. That where am I being driven by scarcity? And we don't, bring, we don't ask God to bring this up out of shame or condemnation or, gosh, I need to do this better, God. We want this to be an invitation to allow God to help us practically, in real time, reorient us. To help us remember that we're invited to live in a kingdom of abundance here and now. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann sums all of this up well. Walter Brueggemann thinks the entire Bible can be summed up with the idea of we see the liturgy of God's abundance contrasted with the world's myth of scarcity. And he says, the gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated in the magnificent, inexplicable love of a God who loved the world into generous being. The baptismal service declares that each of us have been miraculously loved into existence by God. And the story of abundance says that our lives will end in God and that this well-being cannot be taken from us. In the words of St. Paul, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things, nothing can separate us from God. What we know about our beginnings and our endings then creates a different kind of present tense for us. We can live according to an ethic whereby we are not driven, controlled, anxious, frantic, or greedy, precisely because we are sufficiently at home and at peace to care about others as we have been cared for. Platt Park, would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for the good news that we are invited to live into your kingdom now. And we wait in eager expectation for the fullness of this kingdom at the end of days. In the already but not yet wilderness we find ourselves in, God, would you help us to remember the truth of who you are and the truth of who you have created us to be. Teach us to live as your children trusting your abundance as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Steep our lives in your reality, your initiative, and your provisions as we learn to live more freely and fully life in the abundance of your kingdom now. Amen.